Well, I'm here today because Pastor Nate is uh, going to a family reunion on his wife's side of the family, on Jenny's side, and uh, because I guarantee you if it was on our side of the family, I wouldn't be here either. And um, so happy Father's Day. We're glad you're here. Welcome this day. Welcome those who are watching online, and um, I'm just so happy to be here. I wanted to show you one picture that was left out of that little montage there, simply because you probably wouldn't recognize everybody. That's me on the left in days before gray hair. And... uh, there's Nate at the very top. People were shocked to see what Nate looked like, about 14, 15 years old. And, uh, and going down from top to bottom, my beautiful five children, Nathan, and then little Daniel there, then Jacob, and then he's holding his baby sister, Jenny. And, and on the left, underneath me in the orange jacket, is our son, Tim. And so those are my pride and joy, the gifts that God gave to me. And, and they have now given us 17 grandchildren. And so uh, I'm excited here today to share with you some of the lessons that God's shown me in being a father, a grandfather, and uh, it's more of a personal testimony today than it is a sermon. And so I hope that you would uh, open your hearts and ask God to uh, give you anything out of this sermon that would help you understand his fathering. I know there's mixed emotions in this room on this day. Some of us, hopefully most of us, have wonderful memories of, of a good and great earthly dad who loved us, provided for us, put food on the table, clothed us, and uh, made our lives Uh, not chaotic, but gave a purpose and a direction to us. But I also know that many of us carry wounds of uh, sadness and hurt and painful feelings on this day. Uh, You did not grow up possibly with a dad in your home. You have an emotionally absent dad. You had maybe, God forbid, but an abusive dad. Maybe just a negligent dad. A dad that loved you but didn't know how to express that or show that to you. Maybe you lost your father this year, and if so, I'm so sorry for that loss. And there's a hole in your heart that the the dad, the mentor of your life is gone. Or maybe possibly you're sitting here today with unresolved conflicts, either a child to their father or a father to their child, or a mother for that matter. One of your children or some of your children are estranged from you, and I know that pain must be great. Others in this room... Dads bear the pain of only being able to see their kids on certain days of the month or year due to court-ordered child custody uh, rules and regulations, and I know that's painful too. So I, as I speak today, it's not to make us feel bad, but it's to also help us to know to step up to the plate and, and, uh, and seek God to heal the things in our hearts that are broken and to receive his fathering to us. And so um, I wanted to start today by talking about God as our Father. But before I do, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your presence here today among us. Thank you that you are our Father and that, Lord, um, you came, uh, sent Jesus, that we may be reconciled in relationship to you. And I pray now that you would show us your heart for us and help equip us for those of us that still parent or grandparent or aunts and uncles or whatever brothers and sisters, whatever roles we're in, that, Lord, we would have your heart and your your mind, and your words. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, I want to talk about God as our Father. Two things today. God as our Father and the lessons that God's taught me. Um, God as our Father is a major, major thrust of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, there are only a handful of mentions of God as our Father, that he is a Father figure. But then Jesus comes to earth, and in the first four books alone of the New Testament, in the first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
we get a reference to God as our Father over 160 times. About six to eight times in the Old Testament. The first four books, 160 times, plus all the rest of the New Testament. It is obviously one of the greatest things that Jesus came to do is to reveal God as our Father. And so we need to understand that and walk in that identity. When much of our conflict, much of our problem, much of our, our thinking goes awry when we forget our identity as being a child of God, that he is our father. I want to show you just two scriptures from the New Testament, though I could show you hundreds today that reference God as our father. And first, in the book, Gospel of John, it says these words near the beginning in verses 12 through 13. Yet to all who did receive him, and to those who believed in his name, very easy, you received Jesus as my Savior, that I need a forgiveness for my sins, for my rebellion, my waywardness, my self-desire to self-govern and self-rule my life. And I believe that what he did on the cross provides a reconciliation between me and Father God, that he gave the right, this word can also be interpreted right, authority or privilege, to become the children of God. Children not born out of a natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. It's a spiritual birth that we go through to become the children of the Father God. In 1 John, near the end of the Bible, we read these scriptures. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. It's great love lavished on us, not just barely ours, lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. But not only are we called that, we are that in actuality. And that is what we are. We are now the sons and daughters of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. If you're on that journey, still searching like, who is God? Who is this Jesus? I want you to know that Jesus has come, that you through belief in him, and reliance and trust in him can be reinstated to uh, a relationship with the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, wants to have an intimate relationship with you as your father. There's even in the New Testament a word that's even more intimate than just father. It's Abba. We call him Abba Father. That was only used by the children of the household. Nobody else, no, nobody else was allowed to use that name except the real blood children of the father of the household. They called him Abba. And that's the relationship we are to have towards our God. And so whatever you may have missed in disappointments of your earthly father or you felt was lacking in your, in your dad, uh, I want you to know is now available through the love, care, and nurture of your Father God. I want to challenge you at the end of the service, I will pray for all of us to refresh and renew our relationship with God as a father. I'm 66 years old, and I need to ask God to father me more than I ever have. My own earthly father is 94 years old. He was a great dad. He lives in a, in a nursing facility in Denver, Colorado. I visit him as much as possible. But he isn't there to go ask advice for. He isn't there to say, Steve, step up to the plate. Have courage, son. Or to put an arm around me and say, it'll be okay. And so I need my father God more than I ever have. And I, I have learned in this last year to just simply ask him, God, come and father me. 
father me. And so I want to lay that out in anticipation of a prayer at the end. Now let me go into my own personal testimony of at least six of the things God shown me in parenting. As I wrote these down, my list grew into the 20s and 30s of, I, of what God shown me about being a parent. And so I'm only cut this off at six. And if you petition Pastor Nate, maybe he'll let me come back for four or five more times to, to, to do this. Um, but let's go through these. The first lesson is What's in my life directly affects my children's spirits and soul. And I wrote in the notes, if you, if you have the notes or on the phone app, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual thing. I'm not talking about my kids observe me to do something and they want to do that too or become like me. But these are the things that are only, that are only seen um, in the spirit realm. And God showed me one night what this looked like. I kind of had a, I guess you'd call it a vision, a picture. As a young father, I think we had three children at the time. And I saw, as I closed my eyes to go to bed, I saw a fog machine. And we all know what a fog machine is. It produces that fog and it falls over the, the stage. And we've seen musicals and plays where the fog machine's going on and the people look like they're, they're, they're cut off at the calves down. And, and they're, uh, it's just a fog machine. But this fog machine, the source of the fog was coming out of my own chest. And I saw this fog, and it was going off my bed, under the door, the closed door to our bedroom, across the floor, through underneath the closed door to my children's bedrooms, and up and on their beds. And as I really saw it, what was this whole picture about? I believe God started to show me that, Steve, what's in your life will affect your kids, even if they don't see it. Even behind closed doors, what you do in the dark will affect them. What you'd never want them to see affects them, both good and bad. So this fog can be white or this fog can be black. If I'm seeking after God, trying to treat their mother well, trying to learn to love better, learning to grow in a relationship with God, understanding what God's heart and direction are for a man after his heart, then that fog is full of light and wonderful things, and it transfers to my children, even without me speaking about it. It's a spiritual transference. But if, on the other hand, I'm doing things that I would never do if Jesus was standing over my shoulder, or that I'd never want my kids to see me doing, or I do only in the secret parts of my life, and I know they're bad, then that's a fog of darkness that can also affect my children. We wonder why the scripture says the sins of the fathers can be passed on to the third and fourth generations. I think it happens not even by observation or training, but by spiritual transference. And so God began to show me that, and it became even more visible to me uh, when I came home from work one day. I was a school teacher. I had come home from uh, not only teaching all day, but I coached multiple sports. I walked in the door near dinner time, came into my room, smelled some wonderful food my wife was making, and I looked at her and said, Caroline, how's your day been? And she looked at me like, don't ask me that. And I, I knew something was wrong, and I said, what's wrong? And she goes, Jacob. Jacob's been incorrigible today. That son of yours, and at that moment he was only my son, um, <laughs> that son of yours has driven me crazy all day. He hasn't obeyed. He's been defiant. He's been stubborn. He's been disobedient. Everything you could say, he's just one of those days. You know, have you ever seen a five-year-old with a kind of looks like, just make me do that. You know, it's just like, we all know what that is, right? We, and believe it or not, we were that way at one time too. They want to rule the world. And so I... I knew I was in trouble because I, I knew how to discipline or bring correction to behaviors. 
behaviors. You didn't do this, so now you will do this. Uh, or if you didn't do this, then go to your room. If you didn't do this, you're in trouble this way. Behaviors and flat-out disobedience, we know how to discipline. But I had to discipline or change or uh, approach an attitude. How do you do that? How do you go into a child's heart and change the attitude? I knew I was in trouble. So instead of talking to him, I felt totally powerless. I went into the bedroom, and I closed the door, and I, I said, God, what do I do? And I remember God seemed to instruct me to get on my knees. I got on my knees, and I said, Lord, how can I help my son Jacob with this attitude? He's driving his mother nuts, and it's bringing dis uh, unrest to our home. And I, as, as clear as I've ever heard God, there was not audible voice, but I knew in my brain he put these thoughts. He said, Steve, the reason that that attitude is in Jacob is because it's in you. It's your problem. And that has spiritually been transferred to your son. And I just was like, come on, God, I, I don't want, it's not about me. I'm asking you how to discipline my son Jacob. And, and the Lord wouldn't let me off the hook. And so as I knelt there and I prayed, I asked God to forgive me of my self-rule, my rebellious attitude, my wanting to run my own life. And I said, God, forgive me. I want your will to be done, not mine. I got off my knees, went out then with, I thought, some insight or some God would equip me to, to now tackle this behavior in Jacob. And Jacob was a different child. He was like, how you doing, Dad? I'm here to help you and serve you, and I love Mom, and I picked up my toys, and I'll eat everything, and boy, there's no problem. And Carol and I looked at each other like, what happened? Nothing was said. Nothing was done. No correction. This kid just went from make me do it to what do you want me to do? It was just amazing, and I saw at that point this parenting thing is a spiritual thing. So many times we go to discipline our children, correct our children, try to get their wayward ways back on the straight and narrow with God. But most of the time we neglect saying, Lord, what's in my life that I need to correct so that they can uh, be corrected by you? And I don't even necessarily have to step in. We see this in Jesus' prayer in John 17. The scripture is so much become a part of my life. Jesus prays this before he's going to the cross. And he's praying to the Father and he's praying for all of us. He's praying for all the disciples, those that were following him then, the 12 apostles and other disciples, but all who will come after them. And he says this, for them, he's praying to the Father, for them I sanctify myself. I set myself aside as holy, pure, after your heart, God, so that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus was saying, I take the posture before you, Father, that I want my disciples, the children of God, to follow in my footsteps. But it's not necessarily going to be all observed. It's going to be a spiritual posture in their hearts. And so that's the number one thing is that what's in my life directly affects children's souls and spirits. Now, secondly, I want to say stay in the saddle. I thought it was a great Montana metaphor. This, you can see number three on your sheet is stay in the battle, and then I ran out of rhyming words, okay? So at least these two go together. Stay in the saddle. My parenting, God showed me, is a long-haul event that I'm not in this for the short run, that I'm in this for all my life, but especially those first 24, 30, 50 formative years, uh, whatever uh, our children are in growing. Our children are always growing, but I'm really in it for those first 24 years or so, at least in our society, it seems to be that the 24 to 25 or even 30 is the new 18 of years gone by. But I'm in this for the long haul. 
and uh, I need to stay engaged. We tend to take our foot off the gas, climb out of the saddle of full-time parenting as our children get older. We get them through those formative years of being little and, and diaper change and being totally dependent on mom and dad and then get them into school and, and send them off to school and then eventually they're kind of more independent and, and we then kind of turn our attention back to work or if there's been somebody who stayed home part-time, now they go back to work full-time and all of a sudden our kids now are approaching the teenage years and we're kind of getting out of the saddle and we can't do that. I found out that with all those beautiful five children you saw on the screen, with Pastor Nate being the oldest, that parenting demanded more out of me in the teenage years than it ever did in the baby years and in the elementary school years. I needed to be more available, more in touch with them, more praying for them, more engaged in their lives than I ever did before. And so parenting is a long haul thing. Don't get out of the saddle, stay in the saddle and uh, don't bail out early. Now number three is stay in the battle. Stay in the battle. God showed me early on that parenting was a full on offensive and war for the hearts and souls of my children. I was, I, you know, I, I would like to say I, I received this easily, but God had to teach me through some lessons of what that meant. First of all, I found out that if I was disciplining my children to be obedient, to have good social skills like pick up after yourself, ask, say please, thank you, Very many of those just common things that we hope our kids are, we hope that we are, and just being polite people in this world and, and being responsible for our own messes and, and even service to others and helping others, I, I found out I could, I could discipline that for a while, but eventually every child has one of those things they just don't want to do, maybe more than one of those things. Like you come home uh, for the fifth day after you told him to mow the lawn, and you'd say, I'm not mowing the lawn until he mows the lawn. I told him to mow the lawn, and I'm not doing it. And your wife's looking out and saying, well, I, the kids are lost in the lawn, and uh, I can't see our baby anymore. And you say, no, I told I told Nathan to do that, and he needs to do that. Now, that wasn't Nate's problem, but uh, he would, wouldn't do it. And so what happens after a while, we, we just find out that, uh, oh, well, I'll just do it myself. I'm just going to do it myself. Anybody been there? You ask your kids, I'll just go pick up the toys myself. I'll just get their laundry myself. I will, whatever this is, put this in the trash myself. And so we, we just end up getting tired of trying to train our children just to be normal people. And so we end up doing it ourselves. But God showed me there was a more important reason to teach my kids to be obedient. It wasn't to make my life easier. It wasn't to bring more peace to my, my wife and my home. Most of the time we discipline just to keep things better for us. God showed me the reason I want my children to obey is because I'm really training them to obey his voice. That someday he's going to call on them and say, I want you to do this for me. I want you to go talk to that person. You need to pray right now. You need to repent. You need to step up to the plate. You need to love that person. You need to love your enemies. You need to forgive. God's going to speak to their hearts from reading the Bible, from sermons, from Christian music they listen to, or just from his creation or just into their hearts. He's going to speak to them. And I want them to obey him. So that's what gave me the strength to stay in the battle for obedience because it wasn't to make my life easier. It was eternal consequences involved that they would obey the Father God when he speaks to their hearts. And so that allowed me to get off the couch and continue to be in the mode of teaching them how to do it. Or I'll get out and help you mow the lawn, but you're going to do this job because someday God's gonna ask you to 
mow some kind of spiritual lawn, and I want you to do it for him because you will serve him, not me. And so that's one of the battles we do. There's so many battles. I just brought up another point. Battles demand a strategy. We all know this, but especially with my five children, uh, I found out each child needed a different strategy. You don't win every war with the same strategy. What might have worked in Jericho for Joshua, marching around the walls of Jericho and the whole city fell down, did not work at the next town of Ai, which God asked them to conquer. They, they tried to go into it without asking God for a strategy. You can read this in the book of Joshua, and they left with their tails between their legs defeated because they forgot to ask God for the strategy. So I would encourage all of us to have the strategy of God for each of our individual children. One size does not fit all. If you raise all your children like you raised your first child, you wonder why the last two are not quite getting it or going astray. It's because maybe we need to come back and say, God, this worked for this child. What will work for that child? How do you want me to raise this child? Some children we can look at and they're real sensitive. We just give them a dirty, we just give a dirty look. Is that a, we just give them a stern look, a stern look, and they go, I'm sorry, and they start crying immediately. You give a, you give a stern look to another kid and goes, yeah, what's up? <laughs> yeah, what do you, you got a problem with me? You know, so every child, needs that personal strategy. And so I encourage all of you that are parents here today, continue, especially with those young children in the home or that will have children in the future. Seek God for the strategy because you're raising arrows and warriors for him. You're, you're, everyone needs to be straightened in, in his precision and how he's created them and with the gifts and talents and temperament that he's wired into them. And so Use different strategies. As a dad, another thing God showed me about the battles, I needed to be on the front lines protecting my children. This happened so vividly to me uh, with Nate, your senior pastor of this church, when he was about five years old. We had just come to the Lord, and we were pressing into God and going to church and reading our Bibles and attending Bible studies. And all of a sudden, Nate started having a series of nightmares. Not every night, but many nights. Of the, out of the month. He'd have horrible nightmares. Carolyn being the great mom she is, me being the deep sleeping dad that I am, uh, she would hear these nightmares all the way across the house. She'd get out of bed, go hold him, uh, literally cool down his fevered brow from this terror he had saw in these nightmares. And probably most of us have experienced nightmares that are at that level. But this kind of continued and they began to escalate. And uh, I just, and it, it was so weird. It was coordinated almost with every night we went to Bible study. And so one night, he just began to have a nightmare. Carolyn got out of bed. I was unaware of the whole thing. But this time she came and got me and said, Steve, you need to come. I can't settle him down. I can't bring him out of this. He's just, he's just frozen in terror and, uh, and so scared. And so I, she kind of pulled me out of bed. I was half asleep. I stumbled across the house. I walk into his bedroom. Uh, she has the light on. She's holding him again, and he's just frantic, and he's just tense. And you can tell it's like he's looked into uh, the most horrible face of whatever he could look into. And I, I, I felt powerless. I didn't know what to do. I'm still half asleep, and I just stretched my hand forward, and I said, in the name of Jesus, be at peace. I know those words came from God because I was half asleep. But I said, in the name of Jesus, be at peace. And immediately that tension was released from his body and he went into a deep sleep. And he never had a nightmare from that day on. Never. And I thought, whoa, what just happened? And God showed me it wasn't that my 
wife's prayers were ineffective or ineffective. It wasn't that my wife couldn't always console him. But what God said, Steve, you need to be in the battle for your children. You need to be in the battle for their spirits and souls. You need to be on the front line with your wife, holding her hand and praying for the protection over your children. And I'll never forget that day. And I know I was called to the front lines of the battle for my children's souls and spirits that night when God revealed that to me. Saw a miraculous deliverance for, for Nathan in his life. And probably one of the reasons he stands here on most Sundays is because God showed us how to war for his soul because it was a battle against him to not let him get to this place of being a man of God who leads people in the way of God. And so whatever the plan God has for your children, stay in the battle. It's a lifelong battle. I continue to pray for my kids. I continue to stand on guard for them. And we need to always be in that posture. Now let's go to point number four. Um, Go home. Go home. Let's look at this scripture on Malachi. Uh, Chapter 2. I love the book of Malachi because uh, it's so much about family and marriages. That's the last verse in the Old Testament, Malachi being the last book. It says, and he will send a spirit to change the hearts of the fathers for their children and the children for their fathers. It's all about a reconciliation and about a lot about us be- becoming the parents to our children that he desires us to be. But he also dresses a lot about marriage. And he says this in Malachi chapter 2. Everything's not going well in Israel. They're having a hard time connecting with God. God is, seems to be absent from their presence many times. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. God promised this covenant to walk with them. But something's gone wrong. They can feel like their worship is hitting a glass wall or a glass ceiling. They're not, they just sense God's withdrawn from them. So Malachi, the prophet, is laying out all the problems, and he comes to another one. He said, here's another thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he, knows, he pays no attention to your offerings and doesn't accept them with pleasure. You cry out, why doesn't the Lord accept my worship? Can you imagine the, that state of just God removing his presence and blessing from the nation of Israel? And so Malachi says, God's told me why. Because the, Lord's, because the Lord witnessed the vows you and your wife made when you were young. But you have been unfaithful to her. Though she has remained your faithful partner, the wife of your marriage vows. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. And so I saw that I needed to, uh, that my personal relationship and my focus with my family would affect my worship with God and my relationship with God. Now that scripture we just read might have overtones of sexual infidelity, but it was more than that. It was like the focus of the dads of that generation had turned from their wives and their children. They had become preoccupied with other things. I don't know if it was hobbies or what it was, but they were hanging with their buddies. They were living outside the realm of raising their children and embracing their wife in a faithful position of being a dad at home. And it affected their worship with God. So my faithfulness or lack thereof affects my relationship with God. My worship and communion with God is, is not a pleasure to him if I'm not focused on my home. And I, I learned a lesson from this. If, if I am married and a parent, 
I should not be living like I am not. And I'll never forget the night God or the afternoon God taught me this. I was a student teacher my senior year of college. Carol and I were married. We had two children. And I was teaching, student teaching at a large middle school in North Boulder, Colorado, going to the University of Colorado. And I uh, were nine of us student teaching in this building together. We were in a new pilot program. And so every Friday after student teaching, the uh, nine of us usually had a meeting. Eventually that meeting transferred over to a little kind of hamburger pub place. And we'd go over there and we'd order a hamburger and we'd sit around and talk and laugh and cry and share our experiences about being teachers. And I remember about the second or third time I went, I opened the menu and I saw written on the menu not the types of hamburgers they offered, but I saw two big bold words to me and it just said, go home. Go home. And I knew that it was God's direction for me. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I closed the menu. I said to all of the eight student teachers who were neither married nor had children, I said, I've got to go home. They said, what's the matter with you? I said, I'm not explaining it. I'm just not supposed to be here. And so I left, went home, found my wife, very encouraged that I walked in the door to help her with the two toddlers, to help her get dinner ready, to help watch the kids when she had to do the things she had to do, and began to focus back on the kids. I began to live like a person who wasn't married, or I had the danger of starting in that direction, or didn't have children. I have seen in my 40 years of pastoring, marriages fall apart over this issue. I've had women come and weep at my office and say, my husband cares more about his four-wheelers. My husband cares more about fixing up his old car. My husband is more into his hunting and fishing or climbing mountains or whatever it was than he is into us. And these women go to work and they find a guy who talks and listens to them and they just say, this guy at least listens to me. My my husband is never available for me. He's always into his thing. And I have never been able to reel those marriages in. They just end in divorce. And so guys and gals in this room, if there's something occupying our lives, like in Malachi, we've been unfaithful to our wedding vows. We've been unfaithful to our call to be a wife and a husband and a, and a parent, a dad or a mom. We need to get back. Go home. I just got two words for you. Go home. Because that, these are the only people you will take to heaven with you, your children. Guaranteed that God, hopefully you'll take more, but the ones that God wants you to focus on that will occupy eternity with you forever are your children, so go home. God's taught me that. Do life with your wife and children, not apart from them. And secondly, I learned that why I need to be at home is because I'm the primary model to my children of what it means to be a man today in Billings, Montana, if that's where we are. In those days, I raised my kids mostly in Colorado Springs, Colorado, but I was the example of what it meant to be a man and to grow in relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to put a picture up here that seems kind of strange today of two adolescent bull elephants. Now, I'm not saying the dads in this room are Republicans or Democrats. I'm just saying... um, that there's a picture here that I want to tell you about, okay? Now, this is a true story. You can Google it. 60 Minutes covered it, and many news organizations covered it. True story. These two young bull elephants, let's call them teenagers. I don't know what that is in elephant years. But they were transported out of Kruger National Park in South Africa. I've been there because of an overpopulation of elephants. They took them to another park called Palansburg National Reserve. They wanted to take adult elephants and transport them over there so that they would have uh, 
animals that could start reproducing in this new national park and get rid of the overpopulation. But they couldn't build slings big enough and strong enough for adult elephants. And they found out that a helicopter couldn't lift them up. So they dart them, tranquilize them, tried to wrap the strap around them. It wasn't working with adults. So they said, we're going to have to go down a step to the adolescents. We're not going to take babies from their mothers, but we're going to take these adolescent bulls and cows from the elephant herd and transplant them to this new national park. And so they did. And a weird thing happened. Almost right off the bat, they found dead white rhinos. They found 10% of the white rhinos killed in the national park within a short time. 39 of them. Had been no deaths up to that point except through a poacher once in a while. Every one of these 39 white rhinos they found, whose population numbers were very tenuous, and they're trying to save the species. They noticed their horns are still attacked. They had, they had a gore through them, and they had been stomped on. And they thought, what is going on here? So they set up cameras and observations, and they found out that the young bulls, because they couldn't bring big bulls, were acting like gangs. They had all this testosterone in them as teenagers, wanting to be their own big bull of the herd, and they were just bullying the other animals, and especially the white rhinos, and killing them, goring them with their tusks and stomping them to death. And they were just at wit's end. What happened? This never happened in Kruger National Park where we took these young bulls out of. What do we do? And so through a long story, it's really fascinating to read, they determined there needed to be some mature bulls in this new park because it was the mature bulls that showed young, ele- young bull elephants what, it was right, what was right to live in a community of other animals, how to hold your testosterone at bay, how to use your aggression for positive things. Sounds so much like human culture, and it's, it's amazing, but it's a true story. So this time they took a few adult males, and instead of helicopters, they put them on big, giant transport trucks, drove them across South Africa, dropped them off in this new park, and the rhino killing stopped immediately. And they found out that the big bull elephants kept these raging gangs of adolescents under control and would not let them use their aggression to harm other animals. And so it was a great lesson to us all, and I think it's a great lesson to me as a dad, that I am the bull elephant in my home. And my, one of my jobs is to show my children how to use their raging hormones in a positive way, how, how to keep that under control, how to use their aggression, how, they, how to not let them go run gangs, uh, run in gang members on the street. We as men in our households and men in America, we are the model to control our kids. The gang problem is out of control. Our prisons are full of young men who did not have any fathers in their homes. They are born with this desire to rule and conquer. God put those hormones in young men, but without men to model how to use that constructively, our young men have gone crazy in many ways, and our prisons are overpopulated because of that. So men, stay home. Stay home and teach your children what it is to love a woman, how it is to treat a wife, how it is to be a good neighbor, what it's like to get up every day and go to work. What it's like even when you don't want to. What it's like to shovel your, driver, your, your neighbor's driveway even when they cussed you out two weeks before. What it's like to forgive and to walk on. Go home. And then fifth, I want to talk about forgiveness. This is so important. Forgiveness is a, a major thing for our lives. First of all, Mark eleven twenty five 25 says this, and when we assume the posture of prayer, remember that it is not all asking. Most of the time when we pray, we just come to ask God. 
But we're to remember it's not all about asking. If you have anything against someone, in other words, as God speaks to you in prayer, forgive them. Only then will your heavenly Father be inclined to also wipe your slate clean of sins. We have to forgive others. And I know today I'm asking for some of us to do a far reach, to forgive the pain we may have from our earthly fathers and from the failures uh, that we may feel they brought to our lives. But it's important that we forgive. Unforgiveness is dangerous. We, we need to forgive our dads for one reason. We want someday, not one reason, for many reasons, but one great reason is if we forgive, that scripture says if we forgive, then God forgives us. And in the same way, if we forgive the problems our earthly dads had, then we hope someday our children will also forgive us because none of us are perfect. None of us are the Father God. And so we come with even our flaws. We can forgive our dads because they got their own wounds and their own pains that may have came from their fathers. We don't know the whole story of what wired our dads the way they were. I know my dad was emotionally very hard to get to know because in World War II he saw so many people die. He came home from the war. We'd call it PTSD today. They just called it battle fatigue. But he saw all of his buddies died. And he never could really emote much to me. But when I understood his story, it allowed me to not look for something that wasn't available from him because he just couldn't do it because of all the wounding in his own heart. And so now I call upon my father God to know that, that whatever was lacking in my dad, I received from my father God and it allows me to love my dad right where he is. And he's a wonderful dad. And so those things I'm asking you to do. The other thing is I want you to be quick to ask your children's forgiveness. Look at Colossians 3.21. It says, parents, do not come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. Many times I was unfair in my discipline. Sometimes I was harsh to their mom. Sometimes I was just a jerk, uh, a selfish jerk. And I knew it was important that I went and asked my kids to forgive me. To say, would you forgive me? Because I didn't want them to think that that was the father heart of God. It was my broken heart that was acting that way out of my own pain in my life. But fa the Father God has a pure heart for you. He's never unjust to you. He's not there to crush your spirits. He's there to lift your spirits. Some of us in here today will need to, after this sermon, possibly this week, maybe even this day, to ask your children to forgive you for areas that the Holy Spirit may bring to you in a moment when we go to prayer. Woundings that are in their heart that they need to hear you say, I'm sorry that that happened. I'm sorry I did that. I'm sorry that, that I hurt you in that way. Similar like we as children may have to forgive our fathers just where they are. And so the last one I want to talk about is prayer and just close with this. This is probably the most important thing and principle God ever showed me in my life. Look in Job chapter 1. And it says... Um, these great words, Job's sons, he had a slew of kids in the teens. Uh, I think it was 13 or 12, something like that. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes. And they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. And when these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. Because this is the reason that he would, well, this is how he would do it. He would get up in the, early in the morning, I think without his children around, and offer a burnt offering for each of them because they've all gone back to their homes. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. 
I remember when God spoke to me out of that scripture. He said, Steve, you need to make it a regular practice in your life. You don't know what is going on in the hearts of your children. Perhaps they could have even cursed God in their hearts. Their hearts may not belong to him. They may... They may have bitterness in their hearts. You need to, prov- to provide an offering for each of your children. And in the New Testament language, those offerings are as our prayer. So I, one day a week, while I was school teaching, I would skip a lunch. I would stay in my room, and I'd pray for each of my kids. I'd pray that God would have their hearts, that perhaps if they'd sinned in their hearts, that God would come and cleanse their hearts, that they would give their hearts to God in full ways. Just because they were born into a Christian home doesn't make them a Christian. We all know that. In Romans 9, 6, it says this in a different way. It says, for not all who were born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Just because you were born in a location, raised in a location, doesn't mean that your heart belongs to God. And so once a week, I would... and I wasn't great at fasting. I sometimes forgot I was fasting. It was, wasn't the point was. The point was I just set aside time and made it my regular practice like Job did to pray and seek for my kids in case their hearts were astray. And just because they were being raised in a, in a home that was seeking God didn't mean they had that heart. And so I'm going to go to prayer now for all of us. And uh, I hope that you would some way signal God today in this prayer. Many times Nate ends these sermons by asking who would like Jesus to come into their lives and give and trust their lives. I will include that in this prayer. But instead of just those hands being raised or just that signal, I want you to signal to God somewhere any any one of these prayers that seems to be for you today. It may be with a slightly raised hand. It may be that you look up to the Father. Whatever it is, um, just be responsive in an area where you think God's wanting you to receive today. So let's pray. Lord, first of all, I thank you that you are our Father. And that I ask that you'd come and father me afresh and anew today. Not only me, Lord, but all of us need you as our Father. We live in a broken world, and you're an unbroken Father. You're a perfect Father. Come and Father us, Lord, when we need courage, when we need strength, when we need... uh, to know the way when we need your wisdom. And Lord, I know that you answer this prayer 100% of the time. Come and father us, Lord. I want to also thank you for our earthly fathers who we honor today. Many of us have sent cards ahead or ordered presents or just will go eat with them today. And may we, Lord, um, may our words be sincere and true. Thank you, Dad, for all that you did, for the being the bull elephant of our home so that I'm not in prison today. I thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, heal and forgive the father wounds in many of our hearts today. We need your grace to forgive. Some of us find it even hard to even want to forgive. And so, Lord, I ask by your grace that you'd help us want to want to forgive our fathers. And those fathers who may have passed on and we, they left our lives, Lord, without reconciliation and still estrangement that God come and heal our hearts and we let that go to you. We let the wounds go. We let what we think was deserved us go because God, we have that in you as our father. And Lord, I ask that you heal our children because we're all imperfect parents, that we've all made mistakes. We've all been selfish at times. As moms and dads in this room, sometimes we've done less than your heart desired for us to do. 
May our children forgive us. May you heal their hearts. And may they turn to you, their great heavenly Father. And as we usher them from our homes into their own homes, may they rely on you as their ultimate Father God. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray for every father in this room, every grandfather in this room, that you'd anoint, equip, and give us your heart, Lord, to be a father to our children, that we'll stay in the saddle, and we'll stay in the battle, Lord, and we'll understand that this is a posture that the spirit realm transfers and that we'll make ourselves pure so that our children can be pure. And Lord, for those in this room that want to come to you through faith in Jesus Christ, I ask today that they give their hearts to you, that they say, yes, Jesus, I trust you as my Savior. You've died for my sins. And one of the great reasons you came to earth is to put me in relationship with my Father. And if that's you, I just ask that you just nod to God and say, God, that is me. Come into my life. And so, Lord, thank you for this day, that we have a day in America that we lift up fathers, this important, important role. We love you, Lord, in your name. God's people said, amen, amen. Well, we're going to have prayer up front. If any of you are dealing with real father wounds, there's going to be people here to pray for you. Take this opportunity. For others that are leaving, if you just want to start a journey with Jesus, we have Bibles and a little book that will help you. And uh, go and be the hands and feet of Jesus. Men, be the bull elephants of your life. God bless you.